welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. We're currently teaching through the Gospel of John. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Hello, everybody. You can sit down. It's important that I let you know that. Um, we're going to be in 1 Peter 2 tonight, and uh, welcome to Covenant Grace. Um, if you haven't been to Covenant Grace before, um, we are one church on two campuses, and I normally teach at the Menifee campus, so if you know of somebody that's looking for a church in the Menifee area, we'd love to have you join us for Easter, we'd love to have you join us anytime. Um, and if this is your first time at a, at a Good Friday service, um, this is a more solemn service than what we would normally do. Um, this is a time when we remember the death of Jesus. But it's also good. We call it Good Friday because on a Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD, Jesus solved our greatest problem at his greatest expense. And so that's what we're going to see tonight. Um, If you take a look at 1 Peter 2, it's on the screen, verse 24. It will be on the screen. Um, Peter says this. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for we were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And in this passage, we see in verse 24 that our greatest problem that God had to solve is our sin. He bore our sin. It also says in verse 25, it describes that same problem, that sin problem, as straying. We've all strayed because human beings were created by God for the highest possible calling. We were created to be the bearers of God's image. Think about a high calling. We were called to bear God's image. We were called to live in a relationship with God of happy, uh, dependent obedience where we trusted him and followed him and enjoyed his presence Um, And we were called to see him, like this text says, as our shepherd, as our overseer. That word overseer can also mean guardian. That we would trust him as our father. And if we lived in that happy, dependent relationship, we could bear his image. We could be like billions of little mirrors turned on a 45-degree angle. As the glory of God, his love and his peace and his joy bounced off us and out to each other. Can you imagine what the world would be like if we had right now seven billion little image bearers of God that were reflecting out the love of God to the world? That's what God designed the world to be. But that's not what we see. You know, when we look out in the world now, it's very evident that hasn't happened. The text says here that we've strayed. And we can look in our own lives and we can see evidence of that straying. We've all rebelled against God's good purposes for our life, his care. And he's a shepherd, and we have sheep have strayed, we've wandered. And you guys all know what happens to sheep that wander away from their shepherd. They're in grave danger. They die. And the death that we're all at risk of because of our sin is an eternal death. It's a, it's a death of eternal separation from God that we would somehow into eternity continue to stray further and further and further away from the only source of love and joy and peace in the universe. That's what it's about. That's what the seriousness of this is about. It's about eternity. And many religions, guys, would agree in that far. They would agree with me that, yes, the problem is sin, we've rebelled against God, and somehow that needs to be fixed. Many religions would teach that. 
but they would all quickly add a list of religious duties that you can do to fix that problem, that somehow you could narrow that gap, somehow you could make yourself right with God so that you could return to him uh, confidently. But guys, no other religion says what Christianity says in verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. It says that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then it says, by his wounds we've been healed. Guys, Christianity is the only religion that says God himself became a man, solving our greatest problem. He came, and for all that trust in him, he has been this substitute. You take a look at the text, and you think, well, how did God solve this problem? He solved it by substitution. He solved it by substituting himself in our place and being judged in our place. You say, where do you get that? Look at verse 24. Listen how it says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So our sin being put on him. It's as if here we are guilty, we're here before the judgment, and there's a swap taking place. Jesus himself took our place so that our sins were credited to him. It says he bore them. They were a weight upon his shoulder on the cross. When you look at Jesus on the cross, you're seeing a 100% innocent, sinless man with the sins of all everyone who have ever trusted in him placed on him. He would have been seen before God's justice bar as the most sinful person that ever lived with all these millions and millions of people's sin on him. It says that by his wounds we have been healed. That's another picture of substitution, isn't it? That his suffering somehow became something to help us. They benefited us. It's by his wounds we've been healed. His wounds we've been forgiven. And I was thinking of this idea of voluntary substitution. That's what it's about, right? God becomes a man and voluntarily substitutes himself in judgment. And I heard this story this week, a really powerful story of voluntary substitution. Um, This story took place in 1941 in the Auschwitz concentration camp. What had happened in the camp that year is that three people had escaped from that camp, three of the prisoners. And so the guards, to teach the whole population a lesson, said, we're going to pick 10 of you and we're going to kill you slowly. We're gonna starve you. And the idea was, if you're thinking of leaving, just know, once you leave, I'm killing 10 of your friends. That was the idea. And as they called the names, 10 names, they called the name of a man named Francis, a Polish man that was in there. And upon the thought of his wife and what would happen with his wife if he was killed, he cried out, my poor wife, my poor wife, what will she do? And he's just stricken. He shrieks out in, in, in terror about not himself, but his wife. And one of the fellow prisoners, one that was not marked as one of the 10, stepped forward and he said, I will take his place. His name was Maximilian Colbert. The reason why we know this story is he was a Catholic priest. Later he was um, by Pope uh, John Paul II, he was declared a saint. So we know his story really well. And he steps forward and he says, I will take your place. Imagine what went through Francis's mind as this other man comes forward and he says, I'll be killed on your behalf. You don't have to worry about your wife. You don't have to worry about your life. I'm gonna take the punishment. You can imagine he would think, you know, can this happen? Will the guards allow it? The guards did allow it. They allowed the, the exchange. And so the guards actually ended up starving Kobe for the next couple of weeks when he wouldn't die from starvation. They killed him with an injection of carbolic acid. Francis survived, though. He survived the concentration camp. He lived another 53 years. He actually got reunited with his wife and lived another 53 years after Auschwitz. Can you imagine, guys, the experience of having someone else take your place in death? Can you imagine how that would transform your whole life? 
can you imagine how much more willing you'd be to forgive people? You know, somebody wrongs me, you can think about wrongs that people have done to you this week. If you had had his story, you'd be quick to forgive people, right? Your life had been rescued by the exchange of another. Think of how quick you'd be to render help to other people. Think of how you would think differently about your possessions in your life. All your life would be changed because of that exchange. Think of how often you would tell other people the story of Colbert and how he had taken your place. 40 years later, um, after uh, Colbert had died and Francis was out, Francis said in a speech about uh, Maximilian Colbert, he said, so long as I have breath in my lungs, I would consider it my duty to tell people about the heroic act of love of Maximilian Colbert. Guys, you know what this is like. Jesus is your Maximilian Colbert, who has rescued you from a far worse sentence at a far greater cost. And as I was studying this passage this week and thinking about the way that he paid your debt, the way that he exchanged and what he took on, the, the passage tells us it was by death on a cross, right? It says on a tree, the word just means wood. He died on a cross. And I was just thinking about how lightly that lands on us. How often have you said, Jesus died for me on the cross and felt nothing? I have. It lands so lightly on us that I think that it's worth us taking some time to think about what does it mean that Jesus died on a cross. The gospel writers, when you read them, they don't go into detail. They don't talk about nails. They don't talk about wood. They don't talk about anatomical placement. Why? Because first century readers would know exactly what crucifixion was. It was very public, it was all the time. You could come go down the, the major thoroughfares and roads and see people being crucified. That was because the Roman government used it as a deterrent. You know, you see these people, you could be next. You're powerless against us. And so they knew what it meant when it said they crucified him. For us, though, we're very unclear about what it is. Most of the time, we feel it very lightly. Um, I also think that it's worth talking about the sufferings of Jesus in detail because this text does. Look at the words in here. There's very graphic words. I mean, look at it. It says, he himself bore you know, as a weight on him. It says that he bore our sins in his body. You guys can imagine his body, right? On the tree, I mean, very graphic. You can almost feel the wood. You can see the body. It talks about us being healed by his wounds. This is a text that invites us to think about the physical sufferings of Jesus. And as I do so tonight, guys, I am not trying to in any way exaggerate his sufferings as if you possibly could. Um, I just come here to give you the facts, of what happened, and um, uh, we have some images that are gonna go up in a little bit, but um, I get these images and I get a lot of my information actually from a Journal of the American Medical Association article. So there was in the Journal of the American Medical Association, how strange, um, in 1986, volume 255, if you wanna look for it, you can find it online. It's an article about the physical death of Jesus, and, and it's a pathologist, he goes through and he talks about, based on archeological findings, what was crucifixion like? And so I wanna tell you guys a little bit of what it was like. So what happened, guys, on that Friday, the 3rd of April, 33 AD? Well, Jesus, as you'll remember, through Thursday night and through the early Friday morning time, he was put through some unjust legal trials. There were multiple of them. Friday morning, Jesus was mocked by Roman soldiers. They beat him, they scourged him. We don't have time to go into that, but that alone was horrific. And then by midday, Jesus was sentenced to die on, by crucifixion. 
Um, the Romans used crucifixion a lot. They used it mainly as their preferred method of executing um, enemies of the state. The whole idea was to say, you are powerless against us. We can pin you to wood. Don't mess with us. That was the idea. And those, they preferred this method because it was public, it was degrading, it was torturous, and it was slow. They, they would hang most of the time, and Jesus probably did too, hung on the cross naked, further adding to the shame. It was public, people would walk by, they would mock, they would gawk, they would curse, they would spit. And the, and the Romans crucified people by the thousands. And so we have lots of archaeological findings of various people that were crucified, and we can see the marks on their bones. From the archaeological uh, examination, we know that, that the nails were not put through the palms like you normally see in art a lot. It was put through the wrist, right here, through the carpal bones. Um, the soldier would have grasped Jesus' wrist, which he would have offered voluntarily, by the way, okay? They didn't wrestle his arm from him. He came to do this. He puts his arm out. They would have found the little divot. You can feel it right here. It's a little divot between your carpal bones. You got a bunch of little square bones in there, and if you stick your thumb in there, you can feel it. And they would have lined the nail up to that, and then they would have taken a hammer, and they pounded it in until it was firmly attached to the wood below. He was firmly secured to it with wrought iron nails. He was pinned to the wood. Quickly, they'd move to the other wrist, careful not to t do it too tight. He needed some flexion to be able to breathe, and I'll talk about that in a moment, but they left some slack in his arms, and they, they nailed in his other wrists. Then they would have taken this beam that they nailed him to, this horizontal beam, and they would have put it on a vertical beam, making a T. He would have hung there. The next thing they did is they took his right foot, put it over his left foot, and drove one spike through the, um, the soles of both feet, securing him there. But once again, they left his knees with some slack. They left his knees with some slack so he could breathe. Turns out if you're tightly affixed to a cross, you can't breathe. What he'd have to do is each time he needed to breathe, he would have had to push up on the nail in his feet. So he's standing on the nail in his feet. This would have caused excruciating pain in his feet as his raw peroneal and plantar nerves were scraping against that, that nail in his foot. But he'd have to push up like that to be able to breathe. It would also let the pressure off of his wrists for a time. And when he couldn't bear it anymore on his feet, he would let down. When he let down the, the nails that were holding his wrists, he would hang by those. He would have searing pain shooting up his fingers and down his arms as his median nerves were being scraped by the nail. All that time, too, he's holding his breath. And so when he couldn't hold his breath any longer, he would push up on the nail, relieving his wrist but being able to breathe. And then when he couldn't take it anymore, he'd drop down. And that's what he did all day. He went up on his, the nail on his feet, dropped down on the nail on his hands over and over all, again, all day long until he died. He writhed there all day. The pain was inescapable. No matter where you moved to and they gave you freedom of movement, you could not get away from it. The word excruciating actually comes from the Latin word cross, crux. So excruciating means from the cross. That's what the word means. And it's all captured in the very simple language of the gospel say, and they crucified him. And guys, it's important. I was thinking about this too. It's important amongst all the talk of his physical sufferings that we don't miss something that's also there that's right under the surface. Because guys, there's another pain. What was the most painful part of the cross for Jesus? Can we know? Can we know what it was? You know what? We can know. You know how we can know what the most painful thing about the cross was for Jesus? Because he cried it out. Guys, on the cross, Jesus didn't cry out, my hands, my hands, did he? 
He didn't cry out, my feet, my feet. Jesus Christ cried out, my God, my God. Do you guys remember that? He cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's where it hurt him most. And guys, that makes sense. Because if we think about it, what hurts more, physical suffering or losing the most important person in your life? It's the most cherished relationships in our life when they're pulled away, they're more painful than any physical suffering. Imagine with me, guys, the cherishing and the intimate relationship that Jesus and the Father would have had from all eternity. And then imagine with me, if you can, what it would be like for that to be ripped away in an instant when Jesus is in his darkest hour. It was too much for him to bear. And that's the pain that caused Jesus to shriek out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did it happen? It happened because on the cross, Jesus was being forsaken by God so that you'll never have to be forsaken. Jesus Christ was being forsaken by God on the cross so that you can return to him. Guys, this is your substitute. This is your Maximilian Kolbe. This is the one that you are to live your whole life in honor of. This is the one that voluntarily gave himself for us. When I was a kid, I remember watching this Easter movie before I was a believer and I was in a, in a family that went to church and I remember watching Jesus be crucified in this movie and I, I remember crying as a child, maybe 12, something like that, and just not understanding what was going on with him. And one of the things I didn't understand about what was going on is that it was voluntary. In John 10, Jesus says, make no mistake about it, no one takes my life from me. I have authority to lay it down, I have authority to take it up again. This is him stepping forward in that consecration camp, saying, I will take your place. I will take your place, I'm your substitute. And I was just thinking about how do we honor him? Don't you want to honor him <laughs> that took your place? You think, what does he want from me? What, is he, what does he want? I'll do anything. What does he want? Look at verse 25. It says, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What does Jesus want for his sacrifice? He just wants you to return. He wants you to return. He wants you to give up your life of sin. He wants you to do what the Bible calls repentance. Turn around. Stop straying. Return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He's a good shepherd. He's a good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. No shepherd lays down their life for sheep. He laid down his life for us. Let Jesus lead you as a shepherd. Jesus used another illustration. He talks about himself as a master and us as disciples. Let him lead you. Become his disciple. Learn how to do what verse 24 says, to die to sin and live to righteousness. He wants to teach you how to stop straying. Have you guys strayed this week? I have. We've all strayed this week, right? But he can teach us over time. He is teaching us to stop straying and to walk closer to him. And if you don't know him tonight, come as you are. But I promise you, he will not leave you as you are. Look at verse 24. It says that you will die to sin and live to righteousness. That's something he will do in you. So come as you are, but he will not leave you as you are. Let him watch over you. I love in verse 25, he calls him an overseer. This word can also be translated guardian. It's like a parent, right? Let him be your guardian. Entrust your care to him completely. Um, learn to believe that his commands are good and wise. Assume anything that he tells you is the best for you and that he's leading you in the right paths. 
And I was just thinking about people that can't come here tonight, and some of you, I know some of you, not because I know you, but I, I know there's gotta be people here that, that aren't walking with Christ now, or they never have. And I can think of two main reasons that you might leave this place and keep on straying from the shepherd, which sounds crazy after we've seen what he did. But there's two main reasons. One of them would be you love your sin too much. You guys ever been in that place? You love your sin too much? The other one might be that you're too ashamed to return. You know, have you ever been too ashamed to return to God? So I wanna go through those real briefly. First, maybe you love your sin too much. Um, we're all moved towards whatever we love most, right? Like a magnet, we're drawn to anything that we love most. And, and some of you may not want to return to Christ today because you love your sin too much. There was a, um, an African bishop in the fifth century. His name was St. Augustine. And he, before he came to Christ, he loved his sin too much. And he records that he used to pray to God, give me chastity, but not yet. Right? Have you ever been in that place? Is that you? If so, I would ask you to consider this question. Think about this. If you love your sin too much, think about this. Is there anything in the world more important than to be loved? Is there anything in this world more important to be loved than to be loved? And then look at Jesus and ask, is there anyone who has or could ever love you more than him? Because if you found someone else, by all means, go after them. But there isn't anybody that's loved you more. There, Jesus said, greater love has none than this, than that somebody would lay down his life for his friends. Guys, to stray from Jesus, to go out those doors and continue to stray from Jesus, is to wander away from the only one who has ever loved you with absolute purity. Everybody else has some sort of angle, even in your best relationships. Jesus has loved you with absolute purity. Um, perhaps another reason you might not want to come to him now, you might want to stray, or you might feel like all you can do is stray, is you're too ashamed to return. You know, I can think about that. I can think about many times. You ever been in a situation where you sinned greatly against the Lord and you know you need to come back, but you're like, you know what, I'll wait a few days, right? Let's give him some time to cool off. Right? What does the text say here? The text says here that we need to return, that he wants us to return, right? Not to keep our distance from him. Guys, you need to believe something else that Jesus said on the cross. One of the things he said right before he died is he said, it is finished. That's the part that you need to believe. You need to believe it's finished. Guys, you saw the cross. We just talked about it. I'm thinking, isn't that enough for whatever you've done? Guys, there is no sin in this room that is more powerful than the cross. There is nothing you've done that could outdo it is finished. It's finished. So let's, guys, tonight, and I'm speaking to myself too, tonight let's stop trying to finish something that Jesus said is finished, right? And at great expense. Let us confess our sin. Let us receive the promise that it's finished. And then, guys, let's move on. Okay, some of you came in with burdens of sin. I love what Sabo is praying. Same kind of thing. You came in with burdens of sin you've been carrying for a long time. You need to turn to the Lord, hand that over, and move on. Guys, that's the way to honor that kind of death. That's the way you honor that kind of death. You don't honor that kind of death by coming up to him while he's on the cross and saying, hey, I see what you're doing, but I know there's some things I need to add to this. No, it's to, it's to receive it and move on. So guys, tonight is about returning to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Tonight is about remembering that you cannot save yourself. Tonight 
is about remembering the love of the one who gave up everything for you, even his own life. Tonight is about it is finished. And what's great about this weekend is that that's not the end of the story, is it? Sunday's coming. And uh, Orson Welles, the famous writer and director, you know, War of the Worlds fame, he said this. He goes, well, if you want a happy ending, that depends, of course, on where you stop the story. We invite you to come on Sunday and hear the rest of the story. The very, very happy ending. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we are filled with gratitude. We're filled with joy. You've brought us to peace. Lord, you, you, you gave new life. And I just pray for anybody that's here that just, you spoke to them. I didn't speak to them. You spoke to them. If there was anything received, it came from you. I just pray, Lord, that you would give them the hope, the desire, the repentance to act on it. Lord, we pray that no one would leave those doors and get in their cars and drive away from here straying from the shepherd of their soul. There's no need. Lord, and we pray for this room and we pray for in Menifee on Sunday morning, Lord, that you would bring your straying sheep in droves and that you give them new hope in you. Father, that's what we're here for. We don't, we honestly do not have some agenda for our own glory. Lord, we wanna hold your son up so that all people will be drawn to him. Help us to worship him now in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church, Menifee. If you would like to know more about the Menifee campus, visit us online at covgrace.org slash Menifee.